loot, swag, bungs, backhanders, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of funny money about. I'm Richard Brooks. I'm an investigative journalist, and this is the Filthy Luca podcast. Filthy Luca. Once a month, we'll lift the money stone and have a look at some of the nasties wriggling around underneath. The phrase filthy lucre first appears in the King James Bible. It's one of the English language's oldest expressions for money with a bit of a smell to it. In the biblical sense, it's mostly aimed at corruptible bishops, but we'll be venturing into all sorts of modern and historic scheming and scamming here and around the world. I'll be drawing on a couple of decades experience investigating the seamier sides of finance, business and politics. And I'll be joined by some of my favourite investigators, writers and maybe even a few guests with not so clean hands. But in episode one, I'm delighted to introduce you to some impeccably clean, dirty money royalty. Sue Hawley is an executive director of the charity Spotlight on Corruption, which keeps a close watch on how the UK is or isn't enforcing its anti-corruption laws. And Oliver Bulo is a journalist and author of four great books about funny money, fraud and corruption, largely focusing on Russian money. The latest is Butler to the World. To kick off our first episode, I'm asking a very simple question, starting with Oliver. Just how corrupt is the UK? I'm going to give a really annoying answer in that I don't think it's right to assess corruption as existing within any particular country. In fact, I think this is a real problem that we have. We rate countries as if they're on a football ladder. Bhutan is less corrupt than Nepal or North Korea is more corrupt than South Sudan. Whereas actually the way corruption works and has worked for a long time is inherently transnational. The money moves between countries and hides in the cracks between the legislation between different countries. So in sort of common parlance, Britain isn't corrupt, right? You don't pay bribes in the street. Business people don't pay bribes to chief police officers or whatever. That's just not how Britain works. However, when it comes to the provision of corruption services, all of the stuff that helps people who do take bribes to integrate themselves to the global economy, Britain is the world-leading purveyor of all of those services. So without Britain, much of the world that is now extremely corrupt wouldn't be. One of the issues with how much corruption there is actually in Britain is that we have a don't look, don't find approach to it. So we have no reporting line for domestic corruption, no police force that is meant to actually look at it. And if someone was coming across bribes, and, and I think actually there's probably quite a lot of bribery in local planning and local development, and then if they were going to the local police station and say, I want to report this, they will be laughed at. I completely agree with Oliver that it is transnational, but I think we do have this sense that we are cleaner than we are. Even if you look at the PPE scandal, the politicians weren't taking bribes from the companies that they were giving these contracts to. They didn't personally benefit we're not at that stage yet. What we do have is very weak accountability structures. I think we could quite easily slip into corruption because we have a bit of a complacency around how corrupt we are. But I think the other thing to say is about the corrupting influence that our role as a kind of butler to the world, as all of us, you know, we see that all the time, the corrupting influence that that has on our politicians from party political donors getting peerages, you know, the sale of tennis matches with Boris Johnson to the wives of Russian oligarchs. These politicians might not be taking backhanders, but they're sure as hell selling access to maintain their grip on power. 
Do you think we're less concerned about financial probity generally now than we were, say, 20 years ago? I'm not sure we've ever been that concerned about financial probity. I mean, just a really interesting demonstration of what Sue was saying. Oleg Deripaska, Russian billionaire, earned a lot of money in Russia in the 1990s, brought a lot of that money, as many of the people who earned money in Russia in the 1990s, to London, bought a lot of property here. That property was never examined. His wealth was never questioned, examined. And yet when four anarchists squatted his property and sat on the balcony dangling their feet over the void, there were what? 30 police officers, specialist squads with cherry pickers and helmets and harnesses. Ludicrous numbers. I mean, 20 more people than they needed. And yet, there was never any question of examining the origin of the wealth that bought the property in the first place. So I think Sue's right. There is a a degree of complacency about property, about wealth. If someone has wealth, they're welcome. And if that wealth is challenged, the wealth is then protected by the legal system rather than investigated by the legal system. And that has, as Sue says, an inherently... I don't know if there's a word corruptogenic, but a potentially corrupting effect. So even if it isn't corrupting yet, it's easy to see that it could be corrupting. With the right politicians in place, it would be corrupting. And that's something that we should be taking action against before it happens. Oliver, you make a really nice point in your section on justice in your book, that it works for those who have a lot of money. And it doesn't necessarily work for the vast majority of the rest of Britain. So you have very much a two-tier justice system, the rule of law protects people who have a lot of assets, the UK courts legitimising and sometimes even potentially laundering money because you get the rubber stamp of a court and it is very, very clean money. In the defence of the legal system, fraud is complicated and it's difficult to investigate, even the most basic level of fraud. That's right, but we also made it complicated. One of the easiest tools that kleptocrats use to hide their wealth is by hiding it behind shell companies in offshore territories or our crown dependencies, so Jersey or Guernsey, the Isle of Man, British Virgin Islands and so on. They're our places. We didn't have to let them do that. We've created an enormously complex legal thicket that our own law enforcement agencies have to try and hack their way through. If we were taking this issue seriously, this would never have happened in the first place. I'm a bit of a magpie when it comes to sort of pithy words about financial crime in this country, and I'm worried that this might be something that one of you two has said and you're going to recognise it. But Britain does have this amazing combination of incredibly strong property law and incredibly weak enforcement. And if you are the owner of a large amount of suspicious wealth, it's the perfect place to come. How deliberate is that, do you think? Or how much has it just evolved? I mean, generally, I'm not really in favour of conspiracy theories in that I think it's more likely to be quite explainable things that you want to attract wealth how do you make it as attractive as possible let's make it so easy for companies to set up that we won't do any checks you know and then on the other hand enforcement looks like it costs money but what is deliberate is continually ignoring the fact our enforcement is very weak and how many reports how many independent reports do we need so we've had a government review that said the National Crime Agency needs a massive boost investment. We've had the former head of the NCA saying, I need my budget doubled. Fraud is 40% of all crime and less than 1% of police time is dedicated to policing it. The answer is sitting, looking as all in the face, which is let's have a really well-resourced, well-qualified law enforcement but it's actually an incredibly hard one to make politicians sit up and do. The cost appears on the books doesn't it and they can predict the cost of employing a thousand more investigators but they can't really predict the benefits so that doesn't go into the calculations. 
the inadequacy of government accounting or the short-sightedness of it is actually one part of the problem. The Serious Fraud Office hasn't had a very good few years. And yet, even over the, the last decade, they've made, what, one and a half billion pounds in fines. You know, I mean, I've heard it said in America, the return from every dollar spent on fighting financial crime is one to seven. That's a profit centre. Why wouldn't anyone well, do that? That's the direct benefit. Yeah. I mean, you never mind yeah. the indirect. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that concerns me now is looking around at the amount of casual fraud there is in plain sight and what, what effect that has on the national mood. So many shops you go into now, it's clear that they're tax dodging, cash only. We've just walked along Oxford Street, looked at all the sweet shops. There's something very funny going on there, but they survive for years. One of my closest mates just stopped being a journalist and gone to work for an investment firm doing research for them. And he was talking to an investor from the US who runs you know, a big fund in the US about where they invest. And so the places they don't invest, they don't invest in Japan because they don't think there's any prospects. And they don't invest in the UK because they don't trust any of the company governance at all. I mean, it's like, whoa, whole investment funds are just like, we're not going to go there, full stop. There's a story I found really fun to tell in Butler to the World is the beginning of this process, because we were the oligarch, right? What Putin's doing in Ukraine now, that's what we used to do to countries whose trade policies we didn't approve of. We would bombard them until they changed their minds. Yeah, we did it to China, we did it from Zanzibar to whoever. And yet the story of the reinvention of the city of London from the engine of the British Empire to an offshore financial centre for essentially for foreigners to use is a story of undercutting Wall Street. That's how the money got here. It was the offshore dollar market that recreated the city of London. And I do think there is a concern among policymakers that if we regulate at the same level as the Americans do, why would any of the money come here? The offshore dollar market grew up in London after World War II to allow trading of dollars outside the US and thus outside Uncle Sam's stricter regulations. It marked the start of the city's wild deregulatory ride. It's a ride we somehow need to rein in, but how? The thing is, it's not like there's one easy fix. You could say, if we just increased resourcing for the National Crime Agency, that would solve it. It would help. But then you've got the anti-money laundering, 26 different anti-money laundering regulators, eight for accountants alone. And those regulators are paid by the fees paid by the accountants. So if they actually regulate them, then they'll lose the money that they need to survive. My favourite anti-money laundering regulator, the Faculty Office of the Archbishop of Canterbury, which has been regulating notaries public since the 16th century because of Henry VIII's divorce deal. You really shouldn't have an anti-money laundering system which is based on the deal that Thomas Cromwell cooked up so Henry VIII could get rid of Catherine of Aragon. It's good to get a guest who has a favourite anti-money laundering <laughs> regulator. <laughs> I think you do get into some interesting territory there where they've deliberately kept that money laundering supervisory regime quite weak or they're quite captured by the industries. Like you can't possibly do anything that would put off people coming to London. And I think we really need a national conversation about what kind of money do we want in the UK? Ultimately, how much control should the city have over that? Because, you know, at the moment with Russia, Ukraine, we're like, the government like, OK, quick, let's put in this new Economic Crime Act. You know, but at the same time, they're pursuing all sorts of very, very techy deregulatory agendas in the city, which none of us really yeah. understand. They're kind of going back, aren't they, to the new Labour days when they came in and said, let's have light touch in the city. They explicitly said we will have light touch regulation. That expression really fell out of favour after the 2008 crash. But it's actually crept back in. It's being used in all sorts of contexts. It's interesting what you say about how we deal with money laundering. The estimate that's generally banded about is £100 billion 
laundered through the UK. That's a hell of a lot of money, but it doesn't tell the story about the harm that is behind that money. What should we be doing that we're not doing? We could definitely start with having a proper regulator. What you have, as Oliver said, is this insane plethora of bodies. So no one really knows who's really responsible and who to go to. And you need them to have the powers and the resourcing And you need them to also have really, really good staff. You have people who are up against the people who buy the best legal advice that money can buy. And then you get the situation where, you know, as soon as law enforcement fails, and they are going to fail, you know, we get quite a reinforcing narrative that they're crap, so no one wants to go and work for them anymore. (laughs) And they lose motivation, and so they all leave to the private sector. There's a whole culture that we need to develop There's a technical way it's supposed to work. So let's take a big bank and they get the son of a dictator in Eurasia, Africa. They come and they want to open a bank account. The bank is meant to go, wow, gosh, where did that money come from? Uh, We're going to do some checks. And that's the bit where the system breaks down. They go to the police and they say, oh, we've had this transaction. Can we just process it? And the police are overstretched and they haven't got time to really look at it. So they so yeah, 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 we haven't got time to investigate that. So that's fine. So this money has been let through by the bank. The police have said it's okay and it seems perfectly clean. And that happens. Should the bank actually take a position like, actually, we're not going to handle this money. This money is dodgy. This isn't the right thing to do, even though we're going to make a really fat fee from handling this money. That's the bit that's missing from the system at the moment. And they file these suspicious activity reports, a suspiciously large number of them. These are the reports that banks have to file if they suspect they're being asked to handle dodgy money. And they're very useful for getting banks off the hook. All they have to do is file a SAR and they can't be had up for money laundering. No wonder British banks file more than 400,000 of them every year. There is a huge number of them filed by financial institutions, so any institution that might conceivably be targeted by the US Department of Justice, they will file a suspicious activity report if someone trips over on the street. However, when you get to legal firms, accountancy firms, that don't have any presence in the US, they file dozens rather than hundreds of thousands. We have a huge number of them generated by financial institutions, a tiny number by estate agents, lawyers, accountants. I mean, the issue with money laundering was that everyone involved is happy about it. The person who's stolen the money is happy to launder it. The person laundering it is earning a fee. Everyone's happy. So how do you force people to report a crime that they're not unhappy about? Just as an example of how badly it works, after the Ukrainian revolution of 2014, a suspicious activity report was filed by a bank in London about £23 million belonging to a Ukrainian businessman and government minister. It was frozen, and the government made quite a fuss over the fact it had been frozen because it was sexy, it just had a revolution, and it was highlighted and talked about. And then the serious fraud office tried to look into it and tried to get evidence from Ukraine, but the Ukrainian prosecutorial system is not set up to prosecute crime, it's set up to bully political opponents of the government and occasionally to steal money for itself. So the case fell apart, so the money is released. And then I tried to write about this as a a failure and was then targeted by a British law firm threatening me with defamation proceedings if I then wrote about it. So you have this amazing demonstration of how incredibly hard it is to do anything. I did an event at a school about four or five years ago where I got the best question I've ever been asked. If you know all this about money laundering, why don't you just go and do it? 
and I've been thinking about that question ever since, right? You know, because oh, right. like well, it's, if Oliver it, disappears from the well, scene, because, we know what, what's well, happened. Because the thing is, no one else appears to care, right? There's only us, like there's like small group of journalists and activists who, who wang on about this. No one with any power to do anything about it appears to care. So why do we care? I worked on the FinCEN files, which was a big leak from within the US money laundering regulator of suspicious transactions made by banks to the regulator, usually to cover their backs. I could just pick any number of transactions at random and appreciate that was a corrupt transaction. You could see that they were maybe paying half a million pounds for a tractor or something like that. Even the lay person looking at that, you would think, well, that's obviously not a legitimate business transaction. Why don't we have the presumption the other way around that unless you make clear that your transfer of money is clean, we won't process it? The problem is that these systems and these networks, most of the money that uses them is not illegal money. I mean, if this was only an issue of kleptocracy and grand corruption, we could solve it really quickly because they don't have a very powerful lobby and it's very easy to campaign against them. But if you're also up against Google and Apple, I think the real challenge for anyone who wants to force dirty wealth out of the city of London is to somehow make the argument that legitimate wealth, naughty wealth rather than evil wealth, should be scrutinised more than it is. After the big Moldovan money laundering scandal, which was exposed in 2016, happened a couple of years earlier, Scottish politicians in particular pushed very hard for changes to the law and the Treasury not only didn't allow those changes to the law to go through, but actually deregulated them further. And it was explicitly to protect the competitiveness of the city. The Moldovan laundromat was a huge scam to get tens of billions of dollars of stolen money out of Russia and into the Western financial system. It involved banks in Moldova and Latvia, plus thousands of shell companies, often UK shell companies, and British banks such as Standard Charters and Barclays. It seems to me that the Treasury is the kind of uncracked nut in all of this. And is it just a culture within the Treasury or are they being lobbied? Or It's quite hard to get into the Treasury and work out what yeah. it is, but it is the department that does exactly what Oliver just described, which is no, actually, UK competitiveness and business has to trump everything. We have to win some argument with them. We need more voices like that investor you talked about, Oliver, yeah. saying they're not coming to the UK yeah, yeah. because, you know, lack of good corporate governance here. And not just corporate governance. I mean, I think, you know, our own political governance, we've seen that with Moody's downgrading the UK because of governance and democracy standards sliding here. What's particularly annoying about the Treasury is the, the fact that they pretend like they stand like, the, yeah, we're the grown-ups. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. I just, yeah, 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 but as a grown-up, what I think yes. is, and it's yeah. like, well, hang on. And the idea that fraud, yeah, it's annoying at the margins, but it doesn't really matter. It's like, this is a, a huge problem for Britain's business climate, the fact that there is just this epidemic of fraud, which yeah. is increasing sweepingly all the time. This attitude of, there's no politics in what we're doing. This is just how an economy should be run. This is just technocratic governance. It's exactly what the Bank of England did when it waved through the original offshore dollar market. It was just a technical thing. They didn't recognise that it totally undermined the entire post-war financial structure of the world. The other thing is came out of the Boardman review into the Greensill scandal, which was a government's own commission independent review. And 
eight months on, they've done absolutely nothing. That was on Cameron it. lobbying for Greensill for the finance company. It actually exposed all the cracks in the system yeah. really, really beautifully. You thought, well, surely something must happen now. And this great shiny review saying, here's what you should do. And it's sitting languishing on a shelf. But one of his more radical things is like there has to be more equal access to decision makers. I mean, we know with the Treasury that, you know, the banking lobby is in there once or twice a week, endless meetings with ministers. It's quite good. If you look at the published list of meetings that ministers have, you find the Treasury ministers have individual meetings with banks. When the anti-corruption campaign has come in, there's a list of about 20 NGOs all in the same meeting. <laughs> let's get them in. Let's get it over and done with. One of the politicians I'm most inspired by from the US is Senator Carl Levin, who used to head the senatorial subcommittee on investigations and he would just investigate anything and every time they did an investigation and because this is america the investigations had subpoena powers they could summon anyone they would produce huge amounts of evidence and they had lots of staffers to look at it and produce these very very dense incredibly good reports every time they did it they would produce a piece of legislation say in order to solve the problems we've discovered this is the piece of legislation that should be passed and normally it wouldn't be passed but then when a crisis happened they would say here we are this is what we need so when 9-11 happened and they needed some financial regulation to solve some of the problems, he could just say, here you go, we've got this, this new overhauled way of looking at money laundering. We don't have anything like that here. Imagine if we had a House of Lords committees doing the same thing. I mean, like they have in the US, where it becomes a big televised spectacle. You get people in front of you, you have subpoena powers, you can do proper chunky reports. Why is it that we don't want to know? You know, throughout the 20 years I've been looking at this stuff, time and again, you find a story, you expose something and you think, crikey, this is going to cause a bit of a stink. These people are in trouble, but they're not in trouble. Carl Levin's committee did a huge report in the early 2000s on tax evasion, orchestrated by KPMG, big four accountancy firm, huge influential player. Parliamentary committee wanted to know what was happening over here. Were we looking at KPMG? And the head of the Inland Revenue at the time told the committee, well, I just don't think we have that kind of problem over here. He just hadn't looked. He didn't want to look. He didn't want to know. When they found problems, it would expose their own inadequacy in dealing with it. So you get in this sort of vicious circle where if you don't deal with something properly, you don't want to expose it because it will expose that you're not dealing with it properly. The don't look, don't find. Also, there's something about the law enforcement bodies and the bodies that are meant to regulate are not truly independent. They know that politicians wouldn't like them to do certain things. I mean, I have seen, you know, really direct evidence over the last 20 years of a kind of, like, well, we don't want to go after businesses too hard. I might put that out of business. And, you know, and they've internalised these messages from politicians. You also don't have a situation where the police would actually go and knock down the doors of a government ministry. We've just seen that in Germany with the massive wire card fraud. Like the German police went and kicked down the doors of the Ministry of Finance to get hold of documents. And so I think there's that lack of independence and also a kind of government complicity. We've also seen instances where you have Tory party donors who appear to be being treated with more kid gloves than other people in an investigation because people know that there's going to be a political cost to them as a law enforcement agency if they go in too hard on certain people. So if a politician in power did seriously engage in corruption, there is no police force that could actually hold them to account. It goes back to what you were saying earlier about this sort of becomes a vicious circle that people who then would work for the police, it's depressing. It takes a sort of weird perversity to keep wanging on about this subject when 
it's quite clear that all the adults in the room would just rather you shut up. I made a video with a campaign group called Led by Donkeys, in which I was talking about how money laundering works in, in fairly sort of broad terms, particularly from Russia in the city of London. A contact of mine who works for the police looking into serious and organised crime had been getting frustrated by responses from a chief constable, and he sent him the video and said, this is it. And the chief constable replied and said, is it as bad as that? And so he's now been sending it to all the chief constables. It's like, yeah. I didn't make that video as a police instructional tool. That wasn't the idea. It was supposed to be for educating ordinary people. We need to somehow, as a country, change the calculations that are at the moment always trending towards not doing anything about financial crime. You would need a prime minister to come to power who was prepared to do something about this. And this is a system which has just elected him or her to office. If we end up with a prime minister who was the country's leading prosecutor in Keir Starmer, <laughs> and we still don't get it, then we'll know <laughs> that there's a deeper problem. Yeah. I have a friend who works, well, she's in Warsaw at the moment, but she's Ukrainian, anti-corruption activist in Ukraine. And she did an MA in the US and had the option of staying in the US and being a lawyer. But instead, she went back to Ukraine and became, you know, the country's leading anti-corruption activist. And I once asked her how she didn't get depressed because Ukraine is, from corruption perspective, has many, many issues and very strong oligarch class. And she said she doesn't think about defeating corruption. She just thinks we're at 4% right now. And my current aim is to get to five. And once yeah. we get to five, I'll look around and see if I'm going to carry on. That's such a good way of looking at it. Because if you think, how do we get to 100%? How do we end up with robust parliamentary committees and strong, well-enforced, well-motivated law enforcement, a really good transparency mechanism, extraordinary, robust anti-money laundering regulators? I mean, you're like, while I'm dreaming, I'll have a pony. But if you think, well, let's start and just try and sort out the money laundering sector. And once we've got that, maybe we'll go and do something else. How do you think the broader geopolitical events are shaping this? Do you think that the pressures are going to ease or do you think it might get worse? I was reading something recently about how we're becoming ever more dependent on less free, even autocratic countries for resources. And that all comes with very high corruption risks. How do you think we're going to cope with that? I mean, I think Brexit has definitely thrown us on the mercy of more corrupt and more autocratic jurisdictions. There is a cost of living crisis at home. There is going to be a huge push for exports, any money from anywhere. And actually, just about six weeks before the Russian-Ukraine thing happened, Boris Johnson stood up at a global investment summit and said, every pound is welcome in this country. Where do we want money to come from? Uh, how do we want it to shape us? Is it just about keeping the worst money out and having proper checks and balances? Maybe that's the best we can do. Maybe that's the 5%. Long term, what would 10% look like? One thing we haven't talked directly about is the chain that links what we do with the difference it makes in other countries and the corruption it embeds in those countries. If, for example, there's a, a competition for a certain mineral that we need to make electric cars or whatever, and there's a push to get as much of this material in as possible, anything goes, a bit like it did with PPE during the pandemic. People start paying bribes in countries overseas. What does that do to those countries and where does that take us? The harm that this does is so often not told and it's partly because it is quite complicated to tell isn't it? You know you have this it's all very macro level kind of financial crime and how do you prove that it actually stopped one person getting their medicines in 
you know, hospital at its very worst. Sometimes the harms are much more nebulous. It's about like corrupting a whole political system, which has knock on effects that you can't say it costs you know, 100 million. It's very, very real, that harm. And we do need to find better ways of telling that story. And I thought that was really good. Was it the Pandora Papers where there was a real focus by journalists to try and show that this is the impact this has to live in a country where your politicians are completely corrupt because large companies from places like the UK are coming in and bribing them to win concessions. It's a terrible, desperate situation. This, But that's really hard on the domestic front because the British aren't that great about no. necessarily caring about what's happening over there. No, but it takes us almost back to the start where Oliver wouldn't place Britain in any kind of ranking of corruption because it was a transnational problem. Well, there's this corrosive argument that's been used in the UK since the 60s that if we don't do it, somebody else will. But I don't think that's true. We are allowing wealthy people to dodge the rules of other countries, all other countries. You know, how many other countries are diplomatically powerful enough to run that kind of racket and get away with it? So Switzerland used to try, but they got squashed by the Americans after the financial crisis and they had to get rid of banking secrecy and they're not in the game anymore. The UAE is going to do it. Dubai is going to do it. Really? America could squash Dubai like a bug if they wanted to. There are few countries that have the geopolitical clout to be the butler to the world. If we stop doing it, maybe no one else will. And you talk about the money coming here having a corrupting influence on our country, but that calculation can work in reverse. If we start using our legislation in our system, you know, the Bribery Act can apply anywhere to anyone, even if paying a bribe in a foreign country is legal, it's not legal for a British person to do it. So it's perfectly possible that if we were to develop a better system here with better values, that that would have a positive influence in other countries instead of a negative influence being imported to this country. I don't think we need to be pessimistic about it all the time. I mean, the problem with pessimism, as someone told me the other day, is if you're a pessimist, even when you win, you lose. We will always have a sizable financial centre, which means we will always have an influence on how money flows around the world. On that slightly optimistic note, we might not get too many in a series about filthy lucre. It seems like a good time to wrap up our conversation. Thank you so much to Sue Hawley and Oliver Bulow for giving us a taste, if occasionally a slightly unpleasant one, of why global Britain remains the home of funny money. You've been listening to Filthy Lucre. Join us next time as we follow more dirty money.